0: Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play.
1: This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Tatiana Shippey. Dr. Shippy is an associate professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management and a social gerontologist. Her work focuses on quality of life measures in long-term care settings and the role of racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities for older adults. Hi, Dr. Shippy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Madeline.
2: So happy to be here.
1: So I know I just gave you a very brief introduction, um, but I know that our listeners would love to learn more about your background, what your education was like, kind of what brought you into this field.
2: Yeah, more than happy to share. And you know, I often say that there are many paths to uh, for folks to get into the field of aging, but a common thread that I see among those is a personal connection to an older adult in our lives. As far as my own story, I have a very close relationship with my grandma, who is currently in Ukraine, so be thinking of her, and I lived with her till I was six. My parents lived with my grandparents in a very common kind of intergenerational living situation. Uh, I was pursuing a law degree in Ukraine and then came to U.S. as a State Department-funded program for students from former Soviet countries. When I first came here, I couldn't legal system is so different. So I started taking courses in sociology and became very interested in understanding the role of systems and structures in how our world is set up and why we have outcomes that we have. But also at that time, I became very close with a professor emeritus from the college where I was getting my degree, who actually I ended up moving in with him and his family. He was a retired faculty member from that college, uh, was in his late 80s, and his wife had dementia. And he was caring for her in their old large house that was close to campus. So I ended up becoming a personal caregiver, just kind of uh, helping with meals and cleaning around the house and groceries in return for free living, which was a great setup for me. And it was because of my close relationship with this family and seeing what he had to do to care for his wife in a familiar environment and how helpful it was for her and seeing a person with dementia as a person first and not a patient with a diagnosis Uh, inspired me to also pursue a degree in gerontology. And so I ended up for my doctoral work, I couldn't quite decide if I wanted to do just sociology or just gerontology. And I was lucky to find a program. It was at Purdue University. That was the only program in the country at that time that offered a dual doctorate where you could do a doctorate in gerontology and one of 11 other disciplines, and common ones were nursing or economics. And in my case, I did a doctorate in gerontology and sociology. So a long answer to your question, but my background is that uh, I have a dual doctorate in sociology and gerontology. I also, a little factoid about me, also spent two years living in a long-term care facility while pursuing that doctorate, which also was just a huge influence and a reason why most of my work focuses on quality of life for people in long-term care because of that experience.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your background. Um, And I do want to also add that um, here at the Voices of Aging, we stand with Ukraine. And um, yeah, and so, you know, we're thinking of you and your family over in Ukraine and just hoping for their safety. Thank you. Kind of delving into what your current work is, what are some of your current interests in the field of aging?
2: Yeah, you know, I have, as most people who study aging, which is, uh, you know, such a multidisciplinary, complex process. I have a number of interests, but I would say broadly, I am focusing on two areas. One is very much about quality of life for older adults who use long-term care. And as I described, it's been inspired by my experience of living for two years in a long-term care facility. And while I lived there, it's, you know, I I sort of just moved in to learn more about what it's like to live in long-term care without knowing how much quality of life is impaired for people who live in long-term care settings. I became very close friends with so many residents who totally took me in, you know, adopted me, as I said, especially with me being from another country and just loved, you know, showing me things about U.S., telling me their personal stories. But in the course of those conversations and meals and many visits in each other's apartments, they all had a shared theme, and that was that they were being treated as patients. All they felt that you know the primary focus was about their you know all of the ailments, all the things that were wrong with them, and they still wanted to have something to look forward to in life. Many said, "Just shoot me; I don't want to live. I have no reason to live." And so that's where quality of life came in. They talked about the need and the importance of meaningful relationships. How they felt that they were sort of put away from society in these facilities, but they still had, you know, similar interests as people of any age do in meaningful engagement outside of the facility, in wanting to make new friends, in romantic relationships, and also in activities that were meaningful to them, as we often say, moving beyond bingo, because people have different types of preferences. Many men talked about, you know, how like card making and all of these other activities were very much focused on women. So in fact, we have a recent article that my team and I published, which talk about the need for more planning for men, actually in long-term care facilities, because so much of it is kind of around older women and there are big gender differences in preferences. So my, my main area of research is on promoting Quality of life in long term care. But my other intersecting area of work is on promoting and ensuring equity for people, who, for older adults across the lifespan, but especially older people again in long term services. I don't know how many of our listeners know, but long term care is the most racially segregated area of healthcare. And that means that older adults who are Black, Indigenous, and persons of color are systematically uh, sort of sent into, steered into poor performing facilities, we see much worse outcomes of quality of life and quality of care for them. And that is something that needs to change, that must change. And I am dedicated to playing my role in uh, promoting equity for everybody, but especially for BIPOC people. And more recently, uh, also sexual and gender minorities in long-term care. Um, I'm very excited about a new grant from National Institutes of Health that I'm about to share <laughs> information that we just received. We're waiting for final documentation, but it's a five-year ro one that will uh, help a team of us. I'm partnering with a colleague from epidemiology, Dr. Simon Rosser, on this work, and doc- uh, also our own, Dr. Rajan Moon from Chai, on how we can better train long-term care staff to meet the needs of sexual and gender diverse older adults.
1: Congratulations on that grant. That's so exciting.
2: Thank you so much. Definitely work that needs to be done, and I'm honored to play my role in doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I'm I'm so thankful that you're um, one of the people working on addressing those disparities, because as you said, it's huge in this field um, and needs desperately to be addressed. Um,
2: yes. And well, we need saw- more people and more research attention for sure. For these areas, <laughs> it's, you know, heartbreaking to go into facilities and see that because of one's sexual or gender orient- orientation or, uh, you know, racialized identity, people are not getting the care that they deserve. And again, we, we must do better as society.
1: Absolutely. And it seems so much like the culture is that as you are getting older, those things are valued less and they seem to matter less. But in fact, it seems like that's the opposite. Um, exactly. But that's the role more. of age,
2: right? And, and, and right. age intersects often i think as researchers we focus on these buckets we talk about you know racial ethnic disparities or disparities due to sexual gender orientation but for most people you know again we are, are all complex we have multiple identities there are different intersectionalities of those and especially as we're talking about older people we can't ignore the pervasive role of ageism and what does it mean to be an older Black woman, for example, or to be an older, you know, sexual and gender minority, an older trans person, that that means something very different. We know there are cohort differences in how, you know, people kind of the social influences that people have been exposed to, and also opportunities. And, and I think we need to be very mindful of the structural impact of age as we discuss any of these other um, important intersectional areas. Yes.
1: Yes, that's uh, perfectly stated. I saw um, that you just had, I believe a couple of days ago, a paper published on the federal pre-admission screening and resident review program in nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that project? Yes,
2: happy to. And wow, you're paying close attention. That's the benefits of Twitter, that we can disseminate our work in a much more timely manner. So this work, actually, the work on really broadly speaking, the role of serious mental illness for outcomes for uh, especially nursing home residents. This work actually comes out from my research that was funded by the National Institute for Minority Health Disparities. It was a five-year R01, which just means like a large grant from NIH that just ended this April, April of 2022. And so for that work, uh, we were focusing on addressing structural disparities due to race, ethnicity. And part of it involved fieldwork, three to four months in high proportion BIPOC nursing homes. And as we went into these facilities, you know, we were not looking for the role of serious mental illness, but it became very clear that many residents who are Bypox of so Black, Indigenous, or persons of color, especially Black and Indigenous residents, as we saw, were younger. Uh, my work shows that up to 17 years younger and much more likely to have a diagnosis of serious mental illness, but really not a high prevalence of functional impairment and yet kind of being stuck in nursing homes. And when I would talk to them, I mean, I'd see these, you know, and when I mean young, I mean, that's like late 50s. That's young to be in a nursing home when you're in your late 50s, early 60s. Uh, they, you know, we talk about how they're, you know, they're using their language stuck and it's because they have nowhere else to go. And then I talked to providers who said, well, we have whole wings where we have residents who are staying where they could go home if they had somewhere to go, but we have nowhere to discharge them. And disproportionately, these were providers in high proportion BIPOC nursing homes, primarily Medicaid nursing homes. And so we started looking more into this issue as one of the mechanisms that's fueling the pervasive racial ethnic disparities and outcomes because Because, of course, if you have, you know, a younger person uh, with big, big age differences, as I said, they will have different expectations and preferences for engagement, you know, activities and relationships. You know, they were like, well, we're here with, you know, late 80 year olds with dementia and these folks don't have dementia. Uh, And also we started looking into the role of this tool that's called The pre-admission screening and resident review or PASSAR that is part of the federal OBRA legislation of 1987, which basically said that people with serious mental illness should not be institutionalized and should be receiving care in a community if serious mental illness is the primary reason why they are being sent to nursing homes. But as happens often with many well-meaning policies, what we've learned, and that's the paper that we published, that really the intention of the Passer legislation in 1987 is not often carried out in practice, that it seems that it's now being used as a check mark, but there are a lot of games that facilities and other providers have to play and how they fill it out. And really the main goal of the PASAR was to obtain other mental health services for people with mental illness, but because of lack of resources, you know, different counties have different access to resources and information, lack of standardized training, There is just so much variability in what actually happens in how PASA is being implemented. And I feel that this is a huge issue and one of the mechanisms that needs to get more research practice and policy attention if we want to address the existing racial and ethnic disparities because, as I said, Black and Indigenous people are much more likely to get the diagnosis of serious mental illness, which we know is part of the sort of the way that systemic racism manifests manifests itself, where the systems are more likely to, you know, look for those diagnoses and list them versus doing it, you know, for younger uh, white adults. So this is a significant issue and a passion, a new passion for me, and actually an area in which which I plan to pursue future funding to see what we can do, how we can work with providers and systems and states And how not only the tool is used, but maybe you know revisions to the tool, uh, as well as how can facilities that end up having more people with serious mental illness receive the training and resources to do it? Because the reality is that until we have more housing in a community, there will be people with serious mental illness who will be stuck in a nursing home as a place of last resort. And so, I guess the question that I think is worth asking is, so what do we do? You could discharge them, but where are they going to go? So unless we find good places for them to go, and we should be working on that, I also think in the meantime, we need to get more resources to nursing homes to actually provide mental health care, while many, many of these individuals are, you know, quote unquote, stuck in a nursing home.
1: Yeah, um, that work sounds fantastic. And I think you've highlighted some additional disparities that are so important, yet again, to Address And it's not surprising that like an older implemented program might need to be changed or edited um, for our current society. Um, so I'm glad that you're looking into that further.
2: And, you know, another piece of it is and that's what the stakeholders I interviewed said is that this was designed as a colorblind approach. But we know now that colorblind approaches don't work. In fact, they tend to perpetuate existing disparities. And so that screening tool needs to have more kind of culturally sensitive lens in understanding stigma and role of mental illness in some cultural communities where, you know, they do not, for many valid reasons, they don't want that diagnosis listed. And so then the person ends up being underdiagnosed. or the systems are not carrying that diagnosis so redesign and reevaluation is definitely merited also in light of equity.
1: Yeah Absolutely. This is a pretty big question, um, but I am curious to hear your perspective, given this is your area of expertise. How do you think we can make long-term care settings better, whether that be more fulfilling, safer, healthier, more inclusive?
2: Wow, that is a big question, (laughs) but it is a question worth asking because one of the silver linings of COVID is that finally, and we've been, those of us who've been doing work on long-term care have been talking about it for a long time, but finally there has been public attention brought to the fact that long-term care in the U.S. is failing a lot of people and that nursing homes, the way that they were built and set up, are not meeting. Quality of care and quality of life needs, and that there are vast and growing equity disparities for people who are BIPOC, say, compared to white people. And so, we need to redesign long-term care. We must reimagine how care can be delivered to make it, as you said, more fulfilling and more inclusive. And there are there have been actually some many good studies coming out in the last two years with ideas of what it is that we can do. And I would also say one of the areas I'd want to draw listeners' attention to is a National Academies of Science and Engineering and Medicine report that came out in April of this year that that tries to address this question. And it specifically focuses on nursing homes and how can we make nursing homes safer and more inclusive. And they have several ideas, which I support. One is, and that is something that I've been working on for the last, you know, 20 years, for the last 17 years, as I've been out of graduate school, to to make sure that long-term care is not just focusing on medical uh, outcomes of care, but also quality of life, as I shared. And so this Nassim report talks about the need to track and report quality of life as an important metric, which I think absolutely must be done. It also highlights other types of care. So, for example, there are models of care like greenhouse nursing homes and other types of nursing home design that kind of make a nursing home like a home like setting, you know, a nursing home that would have about eight to 10 people. So not like these large, big institutional nursing homes and these more it's called culture change uh, movement in nursing homes also. But these greenhouse and other models models have shown to have fewer COVID infections and uh, lower COVID transmission rates, which shows that, and also better quality of life in some studies. So that may be one model to consider, you know, how we design these nursing homes, how can we make them feel more like a home setting versus a large institution that's just housing a lot of people without seeing them as persons that they are.
1: Fantastic. You so eloquently tackled such a big question. Um, and just as we wrap up here, are there any opportunities for students at the U or otherwise, any other listeners um, for those who are interested, whether that just be getting involved or learning more?
2: Yeah, no, thank you for asking that question. I always welcome student engagement. So I am. Um, I run a lab called Equals. EQUALS, and it stands for Equity and Quality in Long-Term Services and Supports, basically the focus of my work. And I have a number of students who are part of the EQUALS lab, and most of them are paid research assistants, but there are some who are, you know, interning or volunteering their time because they want to see how a lab works. And they, I have more than enough studies where if students are interested in getting some experience, like hands-on experience with qualitative or quantitative data, or maybe participating in health, being us was in you know, a literature review or Uh, um, discussion section and having a chance to co-author a paper, I welcome student inquiries. They could just email me, tshippy at umn.edu or equals, E-Q-U-A-L-S at umn.edu. We have our email as well. And also, of course, you know, always promoting engagements through the Center for Healthy Aging and Innovation. I'm so grateful for ASIC and the important work you are doing. And I, I know for me, when I post research assistant positions, ASIC is the first place where I go. So that that shows me that these students are part of the community, that they are, you know, Intentionally identifying their interest in aging. And uh, you know, check out our uh, our courses, our programming. And I also would say, just as a last thing, I am an associate director for research for Chai, as you said. And initially, when I started kind of creating programming, we were targeting junior faculty and postdoctoral fellows, but in this last year, we have expanded much of their programming to uh, much of our programming to students. And now actually, as of January of this year, we have a liaison to the research core, a student liaison to the research core, Dana and uh, I am very much inviting students to join our special interest groups. And you could those list, those are listed on our website, uh, as well as any of our like grant hatching workshops. Or if students have other research opportunity ideas that we can explore with Chai, uh, you know, please let me know. You know, reach out to me directly or to Chai.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Shippy. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation today.
2: Yeah, this was great talking to you. Thank you so much for all you're doing, Madeline. Um, This is so needed and important work. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Take care.
0: This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media. For more information about the episodes and guests from the podcast and to know more about us as a student group, see you next time.